Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various people about the things they would pick from their life to preserve in a time capsule, hence the title. They choose four things that they cherish and would like to see preserved, but also one thing they regret or find embarrassing or annoying from their past. They also put this in the time capsule so that it can be buried in the ground and never thought of again. Discussing their choices with me in this episode is the writer and producer who used to be an actor and a musician, Chris Lang. Chris is the writer, creator and executive producer of the brilliant BAFTA award-winning TV series Unforgotten, starring Sanjeev Bhaskar and Nicola Walker. He started writing on The Bill, winning a Writers Guild Award for his work, and went on to write episodes for Casualty, Soldier Soldier, Primeval, Hustle, and his own productions, The Glass, starring John Thor and Sarah Lancashire, Wing and a Prayer, Sirens, Lawless, Innocent, The Hookup Plan, Dark Heart, and The Reckoning. But really, this is Chris's third career. He was a musician first, and then he formed a comedy review company, The Jockeys of Norfolk, with the actor Andy Taylor and a huge grant that... Oh, no, sorry, and Hugh Grant. <laughs> That's autocorrect for you. Chris trained at RADA and acted in such shows as Drop the Dead Donkey, Outside Edge, A Dance to the Music of Time, and All Along the Watchtower. Now, why you would stop doing that to form your own internationally successful production company, which you run, when you could have continued demeaning yourself at auditions for those sorts of people? <laughs> Heavens only knows. Ah, well, perhaps we'll find out as we listen to Chris Lang and his time capsule. I've already heard it, so I'm off to the imaginary pub. See you at the end. There we are. We're ready. Yeah. We're all set. Rock and roll. You've gone into your new world, 
and it's turned out to be very successful and extremely lucrative. And I've gone into the podcast world and, uh, you know, nothing yet. (laughs) (laughs) All those big advertisers that you were hoping for. Yep. Anyway, yeah. that's all down the road. That's down the road. I think maybe after this one. I, I don't know why. I just got a sense this is going to be the one. This is it. That's going to propel you into a different arena. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, here I we go. I don't want to overpromise, but... Uh, no, absolutely. Well, Microsoft, stand by. Here yeah. we go. Here we go. Right. Chris Lang, thank you very much for being a guest on My Time Capsule. It's lovely to see you. And it's delightful to see you. To see any human being in, in these strange, troubled times is delightful. <laughs> Yes, indeed. I know. Although I do spend my life on Zoom and uh, the internet at the moment. I have done interviews with people for this podcast where basically all you could see was their eyebrows. Yeah. And you thought, well, you can see that, surely. You yes. can see that picture. That's you. And generally, I suspect you're talking to people in show business, so they know what a frame is. They, yes. you know, they know, they know what a mid-shot and a close-up is. <laughs> You'd think they You'd might think. Uh, just be able to, to move it into, into frame. See, now... You're looking at me now, and I'm just cutting the top of my head off because that's a nice frame. That's a good Mike. one. Yeah. It's a nice frame. I'm calling this a, a, a dirty single. <laughs> that's what we've always called you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was certainly before I met my wife. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, Chris. So uh, we're going to find some things to put into a time capsule mm. from your life. Have you come up with any? Yes, I have. Oh, Brilliant. So what's your first thing? Right, okay. We're straight in. Yeah. Um, okay, it's a pair of drumsticks. Oh, do you drum? Well, I used to, and I still think I can, whether or not if I ever got in front of a, a, a drum kit. Well, I'm actually planning to buy another drum kit, and I used to have one. But whether I could still play particularly well now, 30 years after I really did it properly, is would be interesting. My son, who's um, my middle son, who's a musician, and a f- sort of about to be fairly successful one, I think, uh, was mm. recording in a studio um, quite near where we live very recently, actually, and uh, I, he had to take some equipment over, so I drove him over there. And we went into the studio, and studios are always, music studios are always these incredibly sort of sexy places. Mm. It's just all these gorgeous instruments, and there was a beautiful spanking, I don't know, it was a Premier or a Tamar drum kit or whatever it was, but gorgeous. And I, and I just said to him, well, is any chance I can have a little go? And uh, I went in there and none of the skills came back to me. Oh. Um, I mean, I could do I could do the basic stuff, but uh, I could see a little look of disappointment on his face. Um, but going back, the reason I chose drumsticks was because I can't think of anything that better reminds me and symbolises my my youth and my growing up period um, in a small market town in Surrey. So were you in a band? I was, and it's an odd uh, situation because I was in a band in a tiny little sleepy Surrey market town of Rygate. Uh, there were four of us. There was a guy who went on to become a journalist in France. And then the lead singer of our little band was Paul Heaton um, of uh, the House Martins of the Beautiful South. Yes, and the bassist was Norman Cook, uh, uh, or Boy Slim, <laughs> and then me. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. So that was our little band. And I found a photo the other day, which I did stick on Twitter as well. And it was a picture of us busking just outside the town hall uh, of Rygate. Um, and we busked a lot in our various school or, or, or student holidays. And we actually made really good money always. But the, there's a picture of us busking, and, and you can just see... Paul and Norman, fat boy, 
And there's me sort of sitting behind my drum kit, sort of staring up to space. And the sort of speech bubble sort of slightly reads, these guys are never going to make anything out of music. I'm off to Rada to be a film star. <laughs> and the rest, obviously, as they say, is history. It's history, because you did then do that ridiculous thing of leaving behind these losers, obviously. Yes, And exactly. then pairing up in a comedy team with other losers. You with know. other absolute no-hopers. No-hopers, you know. Yeah. You've been so wise to constantly move on <laughs> from these people. And I like to think at exactly the right moment, yes. Yeah. Just as they catapulted to international fame and huge fortune. Yeah. Yes, that's mm-hmm. when I said, no, not for me, thanks. No, no. Could I ask, who are you writing with at the moment? Who do I write with? Yeah, because obviously they're going to be huge when you stop writing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm writing with Steven Spielberg. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back to these heady days, these beautiful summers, busking and uh, ripping off tourists. Yeah, well, we... we you know, I, I grew up there and it was just, I, as a writer, it's um, it's something of a, a handicap growing up extremely happily. Um, <laughs> and I often used to wish I'd, you know, been born in a Durham mining town and uh, life had been tough and hard. And, you know, my dad had come home with coal dust under his fingernails. But my mum and dad, uh, you know, loved their jobs. They gave us the loveliest upbringing you could possibly want. I went want. I went to a really good school. Hmm. I had a great set of friends, and my childhood was really annoyingly happy. <laughs> and I just, yeah, I, I, you know, it's represented by the fact that here I am, fifty nine years old, and I still have the same, or largely the same friends as those I grew up with. How brilliant. Lots of them still live there. Lots of them moved up to London as well. But there's still about a hardcore of about sort of 20 of us that still see each other and hang out with each other incredibly regularly. And I never stop being grateful for, for that because it's a, it's really quite a special thing, I, I think. Um, I don't know, you know, looking around other mates up here in London, you know, not many of them have this incredible continuity of friendship. And what it means is that, you know, we've all been through literally everything together mm. over the last four decades. We've been through our you know, relationships that broke down on the marriages and the kids and deaths and and illnesses and, and and everything and there's this phenomenal bond between us all because at the age of only 59 which is quite old but not ancient you know we've already got sort of four and a half nearly five decades of history between us yeah that's amazing and in a way, I suppose those the drumsticks, they symbolise that for me because right at the centre of that uh, little friendship group was, you know, music, which epitomised the sort of spirit and the joy of being young and thinking anything was possible. And for two of those people, that turned out to be very true. <laughs> <laughs> Just give it another couple of years. That's all, Chris. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Oh, no. I'm, I'm going to get there, I am. Well, here's a funny story, actually, that reminds me. Paul, who I've sort of kept sporadically in touch with, and I went to Heaton, I mean. Yeah. I went to see him at the Albert Hall about two years ago. And Paul's mum, who very sadly passed away just a, a week or so ago, um, she was there. And I grew up, you know, around her dinner table, as all our mates did, around our parents' houses. So I knew Doris very well when I was a young man. Mm. And I hadn't seen her, though, for 40 or so years. And she was the best sort of um, parent of someone in a band you could ever want for, as was his dad. And they were, (laughs) I was saying to him the other day, that they were always the ones 
that um, would stay late to carry the gear home from our gigs and they would mm. ferry us all around everywhere and they were always at the back, you know, singing our songs and everything. And they were just great people. So I'd always had great affection for her. And there she was in the corridor at the Albert Hall, very old lady by this point. Mm. And, you know, to, to sort of reconnect with that was a very special experience. And then I was saying, isn't this amazing? Here we are. I remember us playing in Nutfield Village Hall 45 years ago. Now your son is filling out the Albert Hall and everyone will sing all of his songs that have been the soundtrack to their life. And she says, oh, never mind about him. You've done very well for yourself as well, Chris. And I said, oh, well, nothing compared to, to, to what Paul's done. And she went, no, I mean, it, it took you quite a while, but you got there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely and she was so delightful she really would not talk about paul at all she was no. just you know she was just saying oh oh yeah we we know he's doing all right but it's so lovely to see you and i so enjoy your tv shows and you know i'm really pleased that you've done okay oh uh, that's fantastic how yeah. lovely and of course all these friends that go way back have probably stuck with you because you don't have the drum kit you have the drumsticks exactly the moment you buy a new drum kit not for much longer yeah that's exactly. the end of them they're gone. Well, I might get one of those electronic ones where you can have cans on and, and then you're not tormenting everybody. And obviously, as, as, a, as a, an ex-drummer and soon to be a drummer again, mm-hmm. I have fantasised all my life about pretty much every single gig I've gone to where the, the lead singer goes, <laughs> guys, guys, the drummer's just broken his leg backstage. Is there a drummer in the house? So I fantasised about that. And I just go up there and I play with Coldplay or whoever it was. But then mm. my son, who I said is a musician, recently his drummer did get sick and he actually said to me, is there any chance, Dad, that you could play? And do you know what, Mike? I bottled it. Oh, no, Chris. Yeah, I did. I didn't want to humiliate my own son. <laughs> <laughs> As probably, they say that doing a gig when you're a drummer is like running a marathon. And yeah. I probably would have got about one and a half songs in and then had to have taken oxygen on board. Yes. Can we do a slow one, please? (laughs) Exactly. Is there any chance you could turn all these songs into ballads? Ambulance for Mr. Lang. (laughs) It's a sort of midlife crisis. I mean, I'm part of midlife crises, but but it's a kind of midlife crisis thing, isn't it, for sort of, you know, rock dad? Yeah. Yeah. No, why not? You cling to your youth, sadly. Yeah. Why not? Exactly. (laughs) Why don't you? (laughs) Why don't you, Chris? And to help you, I'm going to put your drumsticks into the time capsule. Thank you so much. That's item number one. That will remind me of my happy youth. Yeah. So number two. Okay. Is my Amstrad 9512. <laughs> That's going back a bit. That is. Yeah. Did you ever have an Amstrad? No, I was not a computer boy. Right. Well, it was the first home computer really that was widely available and a reasonable price. And I got mine in 1988, uh, which was quite early to get a home computer. Mm. And I remember my flatmate at the time, obviously sounds like terrible name dropping now, doesn't it? So my two flatmates at that point were uh, Elizabeth Hurley and uh, and her boyfriend, whose name I can't remember. Can't remember. Yeah. And um, I remember them coming into my bedroom where I just unwrapped this thing. And they said, "What's that?" <laughs> and I said, "It's um, well, it's a, it's a, it's a computer, but it's sort of really a word processor." And they said, well, "What's it for?" And I said, "Well, because I, you know, I'm going to concentrate more on this writing lock, 
And I think um, I think it's going to really help rather than up until that point we typed all our scripts out, or I mm. typed all my scripts, or we've written it, even written them by by hand. Yeah. And, and I remember Hugh just looking at me completely baffled and said, you'll never need a computer. You'll never need to use it that much. You, <laughs> it, it just the, That's just a waste of money. And, of course, it was literally the best thing I ever bought in terms of professionally for my career. It was a brilliant little computer and still got functions on it that I think uh, I, I, I slightly miss today. Whenever I think of my Amstrad, I really think of it as the beginning of my writing career, really, taking that craft, that job seriously. Right. Uh, and stopping it from being just something that you occasionally did in between acting jobs and that you would write a sketch for Mel and Griff on, um, mm. you know, some scraps of notepaper or whatever and get someone to type them up and send them in. When I got a computer and started to type them out on that and be able to start saving stuff, I think it just changed my own perception of what it was I did and it became a proper job. So for, yeah, so for that reason, it's, uh, it's something that's really significant, I think, mm. in, in my life. And, you know, I had that computer for um, maybe six or seven years and you had the floppy disks that you used to stick in and, and, yeah. uh, they were always going wrong and you had to send them off to a, a man in Barnes, uh, who apparently could unscramble them. Um, <laughs> and, and I still got the disks 30 years on. I don't know why I can't let them go. They're a part of, and there's no way I can get anything off them. They're just these tiny little sort of squ- black square things that you stick in and then the computer would start going, ah, it's very good and it would do that and and then the worst noise it would do all of those and that was all normal and you hear things going and then sometimes it would go and then a sign would come up saying this corrupted which was the most devastating message you could ever get that meant a trip to Barnes didn't it the trip to Barnes See, I knew you in 1988, yes. but I wasn't aware that you were that serious about writing then. Well, it's interesting. I think I was serious about it, really, from the moment I wrote my first ever thing, which was, uh, I came out of RADA in 1983, I think it was, and went up to Nottingham Playhouse to, to do six months rep theatre. And, uh, you know, I met, I met Hugh there, Grant, and, and, and that's when I started writing, because we were asked to assemble a show for the 20th anniversary of Nottingham Playhouse. Mm. Um, just to be, you know, a fun thing to do in the foyer for all the cast of that whole season. And he and I were sort of curating it, if you like, and getting everyone to do their party piece. And then we thought, well, what shall we do? And we sort of went, how about we try and write something? And I mean, that was a slightly alien idea. You know, it was something that other people did, you know. But of course it isn't. It's something that we can all do. Um, and it's just like any craft. If you spend long enough working at it, you know, with a modicum of talent, you don't have to be hugely talented with a modicum of talent. If you work at something long and hard and, and it's a craft like being a carpenter or whatever, you can get good at it. And, um, you know, we wrote the sketch, which got quite a good laugh when we performed it. And we suddenly thought, oh, OK, we can write funny stuff. Mm. And I remember thinking then at the time, I'm actually more interested in this than I am being a performer. I find it much more creatively satisfying. Actually, I find it creative rather than interpretative, um, which is what being an actor is. And I liked the idea of making something from scratch. And I still am energised by that idea. Um, Mm. it's It's an intoxicating idea when you walk onto a set of one of your shows and you look at 
you know, a designed set or a build or all of the crew and all of the cast and the production team and the offices. And you go, all of this came from something that I invented. Yes. All of this, it's very satisfying to see all of this employment <laughs> that came from something that I just made up, some shit I made up in my, in my office. And that's, that never stops being exciting or energizing for me anyway. Have you ever had any um, massive mistakes that you've written down something and then turned up and people have said, oh, no, we thought you meant this? I am pretty, um, I'm pretty tough on, on, on my words being spoken as written. Um, mm. You can only get to that point when you've done it for 30 years. You know, when you, when you start out, of course, when you're writing drama, you know, um, and you're fairly junior, your lines do get um, chewed up a bit. And yes. But I remember now, so you were, you were in KYTV when we I did was. You were. And uh, we wrote a, a thing for that, which we thought was a sound effect, where somebody said, oh, w- watch out for the mullion windows. And then you heard the sound effect of uh, somebody crashing into the mullion windows. And then we said, we said, watch out for the mullion windows. Not a great joke, but it was a joke. Just a passing joke. And we turned up on set and they built two huge mullion windows to break. Oh, that's mm. uh, yes. So it was meant to be off stage. You'd it's hear just it. a sound effect. But oh we, no! We all that money, money wasted. You see, now as a, an executive producer on all my stuff, now that makes me wince because I'm just thinking that money could have been spent on something else. Absolutely, me. It could have been. Yeah, spent exactly. On. <laughs> you mainly, Mike. I, I think, think so. Yeah. And that goes, you know, but there, what you're talking about for me goes to the heart of why I, from a very early age, liked being a writer more than a performer was because, you know, you, you had more control. Um, Mm. And if you're in this business because you like telling stories um, and you like examining the human condition, then, you know, in the end you, you want your voice to be heard and you, you have a vision and, and you have a story to tell and you want it to be told in the way that you'd imagined it. Mm. Um, That doesn't feel like egocentricity. It just feels like, you know, it's your voice and you want it to be heard in the way that you'd imagined it to be heard. So as the years have gone by and, I, I, and I've um, managed to get more and more stuff made, you get more and more control as you, as you go on. And, mm-hmm. and I guess in the last 10 or 15 years, I've been at that place now where you have total control over, over what you make. And that's incredibly, um, it's where I've always wanted to be. So yeah. it makes me sound like a megalomaniac, but it's not <laughs> really about that. It's just about trying to do the best job you can do. Absolutely. If you make mistakes, and I make mistakes all day long, of course, all of us do, at least they're your own mistakes and you, you are able to own them. What's really frustrating, I think, as a, as a creative person is when you uh, visualize something uh, and, and then when it gets realized, other people misinterpret it or do it wrongly. They, get, they build mullion windows and then mm-hmm. those are other people's mistakes. And it's frustrating because you'd had the requisite control. You could have, you could have changed that. And, and, yeah. um, and yeah. I can understand the absolute frustration with being an actor because although you say it's interpretative to a large extent you are told what to do you may well think you know what you're doing and you say well I'm going to do this and then a director will say no I don't want that at all I want you to do this and and if you fundamentally disagree with that that can be very difficult it Mm. because you you sort of you you can fight for it but in the end you have to bow to their well their authority I'm afraid you do and that is difficult I think and I mean, that's difficult at every level of the business and in every department. And, you know, I'm, I, as I say, I, 
I create shows and I exec produce them, but I still obviously have a boss as well. You know, my, the broadcaster who I'm making the show for, uh, and their opinion will be, um, certainly will trump mine and all the other people you work with, they'll, they've, everyone's rightly so got opinions as well. Um, I guess that's part of the, the, the process. It's, um, it's, it is a collaborative process. And when it works well, whether you're an actor or you're a DOP or you're a designer or casting or any department, when it works well, actually it's a brilliant process mm. because it becomes much more than the sum of its parts. And everyone adds a layer to a project. And that's when, when you're on song and, and when something's going well, I, I just love that part of it. It is like you're flying. When it, the corollary to that is when it's not working. And, and then it's, you know, it can, it can be so painful for everyone. Mm. I think it's maybe too pejorative to say acting is an entirely interpretative discipline because, of course, it can be incredibly creative too. I mean, there are, there are actors that I've worked with who have taken my lines and they've created something much more than what I wrote. Mm. Uh, they've created a character that is, you know, they've done what all of us should try to do is, is, is take the basics and then add to it rather than subtract. Yeah. Yeah. Although I noticed you've never put me in one of your things. I'm just waiting for the right part for you. <laughs> I am just waiting for the right part. I know it's there. <laughs> well, it is. It's difficult with you know. I have so many mates, obviously, who who are actors, and I know they all slightly hate me because I haven't put them in I something. I don't hate you, Chris. I don't. I loathe you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what is the, is that worse than it's hate? Much worse. Much worse. Yes. Much worse. Yes. Um, no, but I go out for drinks with my mates who are actors, and then they always say, "What are you doing?" And I say this, and I see them sort of doing this face. Mm. 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 And so, yeah. what you and, and you're fully cast now, are you? Yeah, we are. Yeah, I did once walk through the BBC, uh, and I noticed a lot of people in suits, and I happened to be in a suit at the time, waiting to go in for an audition for something, and everybody in the room waiting to do the auditions was a friend of mine. <laughs> I knew them all extremely well, so when the door opened. I went in, sat down and said, hello, all right. And they all stared at me with <laughs> terrible looks on their faces going, oh, shit, something <laughs> terrible has happened. We're going to have to tell Mike he's not called for this. He's, oh, God. And they looked so embarrassed and so awful. And I managed to hold on for quite a long time going, I'll do it without the script because I've learned it. <laughs> Did you know the people behind the, who were the, the actors? Everybody, I knew the casting director, I knew the yeah. writer, I knew the oh. director very well, oh, all of them. That's evil. Yeah. So I've got my own back, that thing of not being called by friends. Yeah. Did they give you the job, though? No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Oh, Chris, yeah. well, well, it may have seemed an absurd expenditure to someone like Hugh Grant all those years ago, but it certainly paid off. Yeah, exactly. So we will take your first computer yeah. and we will store it safely yes. with the discs. Yes, with the disc and with the phone number of the guy from Barnes. His name is Dr. Dave. Dr. Dave. Yeah. Yes, we've all been to him, but, you know, usually for different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's number two. Yeah. So what's your third item? Okay, we're going to take an obligatory pause here for an ad break. We'll be back in a minute. Uh, can I have another pint, please, imaginary barman? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Oh, and some peanuts, please. Ta. Oh, welcome back. Right, let's find out what else Chris Lang would like to put in his time capsule. So my third item, it's a tiny little bit of a cheat, and you may pull me up on, I'm sure, your very stringent rules. Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I suspected that might have happened. Um, so it's a box, Mike. It's a yeah. box in which are some things. Mm-hmm. And it's a slightly nebulous concept, but I think it can be represented uh, and distilled by one thing. My son I was talking about earlier, who, who's a musician, um, mm. when he was about 14, we, we sent him to this thing. It's a, a little local club where they taught you how to write songs, not to be necessarily a performer, although lots of people were, but it was a songwriting class. It was just mm. around the corner, and it was one of those things that you think, what on earth am I going to do with uh, X number of children during this half term? Oh, here's something, and it only costs a tenner ago. Yeah. So we sent him off to that, and at the end of the term, they do a little showcase, and they would perform the song they had written over the course of their 10-week uh, course or whatever, one night a week. Mm-hmm. And my son stood up, and he sang this song. Now, most, I'm not going to disparage uh, particularly the students of Song Academy, but there's a commonality to, to, to the songs of 13, 14-year-olds. Um, it particularly, um, I should say, the, the girls, and there were a lot more girls and boys, and it tends to be um, a song about thwarted love, generally. <laughs> uh, you know, being generous, they say well, most of those songs weren't perhaps as melodic as, as one might have hoped for, and they generally <laughs> tended to be sort of along the lines of, he has left me, and my heart is broken, <laughs> and I loved him so much, and now he has gone away again. <laughs> and so after about sort of 20 of these uh, songs, you know, my wife and I were just going, mm, oh, lovely, yes, marvellous. And then my son Oscar came up and sang just the most fantastic little pop song. And, you know, we realised then that, yeah, I, I know all parents say this, but it turns out he, he, you know, he's now signed to a record label and he has a publishing deal and he's got a million followers on Spotify, I won't big him up anymore, but, you know, he's going to be a successful musician. And, and we recognised that as soon as we heard that song, not in a partisan parental way, but just in an objective, wow, this guy can, can write songs. And the reason I tell that story is because that moment, if I could bottle that moment or that song, mm. it was an exemplar of that moment. And all of our kids, I've got three sons and two stepdaughters, all of them have, have exhibited this moment in some way. It was an example of that moment when your kids outgrow you. They out they outreach you yes. in, a, in a lovely way. I looked at him, and I've never written a song in my life. I couldn't to save my life. Um, and I looked at what he did, and I just thought, where did that come from? <laughs> that is nothing to do with me. That is probably almost nothing to do with his mother. That is this sort of 
thing where the you know the two people that made this boy didn't contribute to this really apart from the love and the nurturing this talent came out that was his own yes and he'd become his own person and he'd become <laughs> this incredibly sort of talented you know low level genius in my view obviously lots of other people wouldn't agree with that but all of my kids have at some point done this thing where you go wow you're this you know little mini human and you're going to grow up to be something so much sort of more and, and better than than anything that we could have given you and so that's what i'd like to go into a box yes little moments where you recognize that thing with your children and it's a very for me it's a really special special thing it is a very special thing. I have a shared experience of, of that moment, actually. My son writes music, right. and uh, he's not going to be a pop star, but he's written some fantastic stuff. Yeah. But he, he wanted a little cassette four-track. He asked for that for Christmas, so we bought it yeah. for him, thinking, well, this is too complicated. He'll never get the hang of it. Yeah. But he wants it, so we bought it. Yeah. He then disappeared to his room, and about three hours later came back down with a song where he played the drums, the guitar, done all the singing, and done the harmonies, yeah. the keyboards. Now, we yeah. didn't even know he could play keyboards. Yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And yeah. and I don't think I'd ever really heard him sing out, as it were. My daughter was a singer. She was the yeah. one who always would be singing in the back of the car. She said to us afterwards when I said, I was amazed, out came this song. And she said, yeah, well, he always used to sit next to me doing the harmony. And I'd never noticed it, you know. Yeah. So again, this thing was played to me on this cassette where he bounced it all down, yeah. mixed it all, put it all together, yeah. and in about three hours. Yeah. And so I absolutely know that feeling where you think, yeah. "Oh my word, you are not me at all. You are yeah. somebody completely different yeah. and individual, and you're going to do your own things." Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You're an individual, and you're not an extension of me anymore. You're no. your own person with all your flaws but also all your these new skills yeah. my youngest son came home the other day and he'd won a competition at school and he'd made a little film and he'd done it on his filmed it on his apple and he'd shot it all around where we live and he got one of his mates in and i was thinking how does he know how to do a zoom and a yeah. mid shot and a two shot and edit it and <laughs> slow-mo and it was re it was like a 90 second film but it was really good and mm. again it was that He's like 14, 15. You go, wow. You know, yeah. again, I'd never taught him any of that. Um, something beyond this little thing growing inside our kids' minds where they're just becoming individuals. It's, yeah. yeah, so it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. It's kind of what being a parent is about, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I did once make the mistake of playing that song on a drunken evening on holiday once to a group of people, and I said... Uh, Actually, let me play this song. This my son wrote this. He's only yeah. fifteen, and I played it to them, and they went, "It's really nice, really nice song, lovely." I said, "I'm very proud of it." And then one of the people who was there, a woman called Alison, said to me, "Do you want to hear my daughter's song?" And I went, "Yeah, okay." And uh, her daughter was Lily Allen. <laughs> that was Alison Owen. Yes. <laughs> And she released anything? She had. She had released stuff, she, but only just started. And she said, this is her latest one. It's not been released yet. And we played it, and it was just fabulous, you know. And you went, okay, yeah. all right, yeah, fair enough, yeah. My son's only 15. He's got work. He's got work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how funny. There that we are. That is funny. Yeah, I mean, Lily Allen, a little genius as well, isn't she? Isn't she just? 
yeah, yeah. fantastic. Our mother's uh, no slouch either, so... No, no, absolutely. Gorgeous woman. Mm. Uh, so, well, yeah, I, I'm absolutely certain that we can take those moments and, you know, capture them. I think yeah. if anything should go into these time capsules, it is those ephemeral moments, the moments that you can't really hang on to, but we're going to try and hold on to them by putting them into a time capsule. We can hold on to them by distilling them perhaps into an object, into a song, into a video, into a, a certificate that my eldest son got that had great meaning. We'll do it that way. We'll yeah. make them into an object. And that yeah. is the way that the rules can be followed, Mike. And I think Indeed. It's... Thank you very much for, for following the rules, yes. which I wasn't aware that I'd made. But yes. there we... <laughs> Okay. Brilliant. That's three things we put into the time capsule. Mm. So we've got uh, two more, one that you love yeah. and one that you're glad to get rid of. Yeah. So the next object, uh, it is an actual tangible object and it is a picture or, or it's something hanging on the wall in a frame. Uh, and it's just such a representation of one of the saddest and happiest times of my life. Um, it marks a sort of transitionary, uh, transitional period in my life. And I, I made it for my, my now wife. Um, and I, I guess I made it about 10 years ago. And it is a printout of the first maybe 15 emails that we sent to each other when we first met. Mm. Uh, and I plucked these emails. They're, they're, they're not actually emails. They're messages that were on the dating site that we met on. <laughs> And so they sort of, they spiral around on, in the framed picture, which is hanging in our bedroom. And I read these very often, very frequently, because it reminds me literally of the moment we first connected mm. and this unbelievable love affair uh, started, which, you know, has just given me so much happiness. And they start with the, um, I think she emailed me first. She'll probably deny that and say that I emailed her. <laughs> um, but I think she emailed me first and my, profile was up on this dating site and and it sort of just shows oh hi there my name's francis and da, 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 and then me replying and then it just goes around to you know about as i say about 15 messages way before we'd even met um and and just leading up to the point i think on the last one it just says anyway do you fancy meeting for a coffee mm. uh, and and then we came off that and then we started to interact in in real life and it's, as they say, it's this incredibly bittersweet thing because it, it, the reason I was on a dating site was because my wife, my first wife had died uh, very suddenly um, when uh, my boys were uh, two, uh, seven and 11 years old. Mm. And so I'd spent, after she died, um, the, the following sort of year and a half, obviously in, in uh, profound grief and trying to, trying to, help my boys get through this this uh, absolutely awful period in their lives uh, it was a time when one would struggle to see happiness ahead and could not see the light at the end of the tunnel and and about sort of a year and a quarter into this my brother um, who had been absolutely brilliant throughout it said you know you seem to be going down rather than up I think you need something to sort of propel you into a different sort of rhythm in your life which mm. is really kind of settled into just sort of managing and getting the kids through it. And and he said, you know, I'm not suggesting you're going to go out there and meet someone else, but just to have fun with someone and not just go out and have a few drinks with someone might just take you out of the rhythm that you're in at the moment. So, yeah. so 
he put me on this website, which the great thing about it was that I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to do any work. He was able to write my profile. Mm-hmm. Um, hilariously, he described me only as quite good looking. That's my own brother. <laughs> uh, uh, and he wrote the, the blurb and he, he said, you know, a little bit about what my situation was and, and he got a photo and he, so he did it all. And Francis was the, was the pretty much the first person that I really connected with. And, um, it was extraordinary. She had turned out to, to live only about 300 yards away from me. And this was in a national website. <laughs> um, Amazing. Yeah. Um, she was divorced and she had uh, two young daughters uh, at that time. Um, this was in 2009. Mm. And we started to meet and, you know, slowly this darkness began to lift and we began to fall in love and we had, various obstacles to overcome because bringing two families together was really difficult. Obviously my boys were still wrestling with their problems. The, the, my, my stepdaughters were, you know, their parents had gone through a divorce, which is mm. always difficult. And, um, you know, so we had lots of obstacles to, to hurdle, but then finally in 2012, we all moved, moved into one big house. And in 2013, we got married and it's just been, you know, the happiest, some of the happiest years of my life. Um, and, you know, we're a massive family of seven now. Mm-hmm. And every time I look at that picture, I'm reminded of, you know, the light and the dark. And that whenever you seem to be in the darkest place, there, there is often, not always, of course, but often there is light coming. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a really, it's a, it's a good thing to look at in your bedroom pretty much <laughs> every day, really. To remind yourself. So you can absolutely guarantee that, that she sent you the first message can you (laughs) anytime you go come on you chase me yeah you chase me we're both very very competitive and uh, we both remained on the site i mean she remained on the site longer than i did after we'd met each other which i always found quite annoying Um, (laughs) but we used to have a competition about how many messages we'd got from prospective suitors and Mm. uh she'd come home and said yeah i had another 30 or 40 today and i go oh 40 right no 45 i'm afraid um so we remained extremely competitive about how many people wanted to go out with us Mm. Uh, and i still maintain i won (laughs) oh fantastic well what a lovely thing to hear Mm. what a wonderful story because there are so many people who are suffering for different reasons Mm. and you're right that actually when things seem really desperate like that quite often there is something that's coming yeah and certainly changes your your outlook on life when you've been through something like that because you know uh, never more so than now do we need to understand that the way people behave sometimes might be because of really bad stuff going on in their life and we should all be more mindful of that you never know what someone's going through on a daily basis and why they might be behaving in challenging ways and i certainly i try to 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 bear in mind what I know I went through and the, and the pain that m- my kids and I were in and, and how that might have come across at certain times. And, you know, it just gives you more empathy, I think, or, or an mm. understanding of, of human nature. Um, yeah. Well, okay, we'll take that lovely picture of the messages you sent each other on the dating app. Yeah. And that will go into the time capsule forevermore. Good. Okay, we've got one more thing to put in there. Yeah. So I was torn. I want possibly to put an object that I believe 
could threaten liberal uh, Western democracy or a small <laughs> green vegetable. <laughs> Same thing, isn't it? <laughs> And I can't quite make up my mind. Okay. Um, the small green vegetable is I'm thinking about putting in is peas. Um, the other object is, uh, and I know you're, uh, I mean, you may not be a fan, but you, you certainly know what, what it is and use it, is Twitter. Uh. So maybe if I just make the case for both to go in the time capsule, maybe, Mike, you could decide. Or is that against your rules no, no, too? No, no, no. I'm happy to decide for you. You could tell me, you know, okay. make an argument for both. I don't mind. Okay. Although I have to warn you that the music on this podcast is written by my son and his company that he writes the music under the name of is called mm. Pass the Peas. Why? Because it sounds interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. He doesn't have any particular association with peas or something? No, I think he just likes funny phrases. Yeah, okay. Well, ever since I was a kid... I have loathed peas. I don't like the shape of them. <laughs> I don't like the little pop as you bite into one. Um, and it was the kind of the staple vegetable of uh, a 70s uh, family, frozen, always easy to cook for a, my parents both worked. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a mum coming home or a dad, uh, let's, let's not make stereotypes here. My dad never cooked a single meal, I should say. <laughs> um, but for my mum coming home and wanting to cook a quick uh, dinner, so peas were, were almost always the vegetable, and I absolutely hated them, and I used to do everything I could to try and not eat them, hide them under the fork, like that was ever going to work. <laughs> um, so I tried everything, and, and it became a slight obsession, I have to say, and it's an obsession that stayed with me for 45, 50 years. Mm-hmm. It is it's a source of great hilarity to all of those friends I was talking about um, who have for the last 40 years tried whenever we've gone out for dinner to try and slip a pea into my food um, <laughs> uh, when, when my head was turned. I've always managed to spot the pea and the obsession or hatred of the pea has bled into other small round vegetables. So I can't eat sweet corn. I can't eat baked beans. I can't eat any pulses that are round and small. Uh, because I think the pea has polluted those for me. <laughs> it's a disguised pea. Is that what you're it saying? Is a, it's a pea disguised as a baked bean. Um, <laughs> so I would really happily, without any complication at all, put peas into my time pod and so I never have to see them again. Mm. Well, I did once do the voiceover for Bird's Eye Peas. Did you? Yes, it was quite lucrative. In fact, I played a pea. We had to be peas. What was your pe- little pea voice? Uh, it was just a little like that. Just, wee, ah, just uh, yes. quite, quite fake, quite gentle. Uh, yeah. And in fact, yeah. I did get the note from the person who was directing it, who said, yeah, that's great, Mike. Um, actually, could you try and sound a bit more like a pea? Yes. And I did exactly the same thing. And they went, that's great. Yes, they're all marvellous. Yes, yes, that's it. So, you know. Yeah. Have you done any other vegetables? I've done a black currant. Is that a fruit? Yes. 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 I've done the same thing with being a black currant jumping into a, a bottle of Ribena. And was he like that as He well? was exactly the same voice as the pea. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, you could uh, create a little niche there in, in, the, in the market. I remember I once, when I used to do a lot of voiceovers, I think I cornered a niche uh, in embarrassing unctions. <laughs> I did lanyacane, which is a sort of a, a cream to rub between the thighs of well-covered uh, ladies and gentlemen right. in order to, to um, help with chafing, shall we say. <laughs> and I did diocarm. 
the voice that staunched a thousand ships I, I labeled myself <laughs> as. I did a denture one. I did all these things that you'd sort of be slightly embarrassed to go into a chemist uh, and ask for. Wow. So you, I think I cornered the mark in uh, uh, embarrassing ungoance mm. and might kill the small little... And the voice of fruit and vegetable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marvellous. So, yeah. all right, well, you know, it's a good argument for peas, I think. You know, if if, it, yeah. if they really put you off the whole meal. Oh, they, if, if, I, if, I, if I ever had peas, on, and if I went out for dinner uh, with some friends and peas were on the plate, it, you know, it would pollute anything that it touched. Mm. And there, be, there might be pea juice oh. or pea taste, you know, and I would really struggle to eat the rest of it. Oh, my God, I can, I'm going to say these words, but I know what your reaction is going to be to it, which is I'm going to say... Uh, imagine fish and chips and mushy peas. Oh, 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 no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Peas. I apologise. Uh, I went to a thing, my, my, a charity thing. My wife was running about a year ago and I was late and I, I ran in and this waitress handed me what I thought was some kind of thing, like an avocado sort of shot or something, and I necked it all <laughs> in one. And as it hit the back of my throat, I realised it was pureed pea. Mm. And um, it was quite a grand sort of charity thing. And she was obviously on show. She was the executive of the company, I think, at the time. And she was trying to sort of <laughs> impress various, you know, bigwigs. And I, all I really wanted to do was just spew the whole lot out. <laughs> or, or just I wanted to find a plant pot that I could gob it into. But I couldn't, obviously. I had to swallow it. And oh. th- that was the most peas that I had ingested for 50 years. Oh, that's that's devious, isn't it? All they were saying is give peas a chance. <laughs> <laughs> have you been holding that back i wasn't holding it back no, it just came to you then it just came to me then <laughs> i haven't prepared it in any way but anyway enough of peas yes the other thing is twitter i don't know how much you use it i use it much more than i should do but my god it's a toxic uh platform and i think it could really do i genuinely do think without being flippant that it is um has corrupted uh, and has the potential to seriously corrupt uh, democracy and America is a, a, a case in point. Yeah. So it's not just that, but it's also a platform that polarizes, distills debate into you know, 147 characters, whatever it is, which can only ever cause a lack of sophistication mm-hmm. and nuance and mm-hmm. uh, restraint. And much as I like the more frivolous element of it, um, I think it has profoundly damaged discourse. Yes. Particularly around tricky subjects. Um, and I think it's, created huge huge division and continues to and i guess yeah i sort of i don't know how you could get rid of it i don't know you see uh, in a way we ought to be having those discussions but they are not discussions on twitter they are people hurling abuse at each other which is uh, not the way to go about it perhaps we should have twitter for people who want to be angry and say things that they think are important and then twitter light for people like you and i who, who basically mm. just want to put jokes on there yeah, um, and then maybe another Twitter where people can just put bad jokes. I think, that, I think that's where I'd be most comfortable. Twitter relight. <laughs> so I don't know. I think um, I think the world would be better served by putting Twitter as the thing that uh, we mm. can get rid of than uh, peas. Because uh, by, oh, by all accounts, people quite like peas. Apparently. Oh, Lord, what a quandary. This is my decision, isn't it? It is in the end, yeah. I know. Yeah. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I mean, I like peas, so mm. we're in trouble, really. I, I really mm. do like peas. And You're my... not bothered at all by the little poppers as they go into your mouth. That nasty little. Oh, Chris. Um, okay, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna put them both in. 
Okay. I don't care. Is that a first? Yeah, yeah who cares? Rules, let's break them. Come on. Yeah. That's what Twitter's for. Yeah. Breaking the rules. Yeah. Yeah. So it's in there. All right, along with peas. It's your capsule. Yeah. So I think it's fine. And when do I get my actual capsule, Mike? Oh, right. Well, uh, there'll be a lorry arriving. Yes. Very, very soon. Yeah, you can't miss it. Yeah. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. I'll probably get a text saying it'll arrive between 7 o'clock uh, in the morning <laughs> and uh, 12 o'clock at night. Please be in. Yes. And uh, I'm afraid if I were you, I'd start digging now. Yeah. It's a big one. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thank you for those lovely things. You are very welcome. Cheers, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my delightful guest, Chris Lang, while I've spent a very pleasant hour in an imaginary pub. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to it on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider, where hopefully you'll be able to rate it with five stars and leave a glowing review. You can find a full-length version of our theme tune on Spotify, which, as I mentioned to Chris, was composed by Pass the Peas Music. This podcast was produced by John Fenton-Stevens, and it was a cast-off production, which you can follow on Instagram or Facebook, but sadly not Twitter, because that's been locked away in Chris Lang's time capsule. Sorry about that. I hope to see you again next time, when I'll be with you for the whole episode, because bizarrely it turns out you can be barred from your own imaginary pub. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.